Welcome to an Uvula Audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain, Volume 4. Chapter 3, Part 4. Meanwhile, there was one discovery of mine, one poet who was a poet indeed, and a romantic poet, but vastly different from those contemporaries with whom he had so little to do. I think my love for William Blake had something in it of God's grace. It's a love that has never died, and which has entered very deeply into the development of my life. Father had always liked Blake, and had tried to explain to me what was good about him when I was a child of ten. The funny thing about Blake is that, although the Songs of Innocence look like children's poems, and almost seem to have been written for children, they are to most children incomprehensible, or at least they were to me. Perhaps if I had read them when I was four or five, it would have been different. But when I was ten, I knew too much. I knew that tigers did not burn in the forests of the night. That was very silly, I thought. Children are very literal-minded. I was less literal-minded when I was sixteen. I could accept Blake's metaphors, and they already began a little to astound and to move me, although I had no real grasp of their power and depth. And I liked Blake immensely, I read him with more patience and attention than any other poet. I thought about him more, and I could not figure him out. I, mean, I don't mean I couldn't figure out the prophetic books. Nobody can do that. But I could not place him in any kind of a context, and I did not know how to make his ideas fit together. One gray Sunday in spring, I walked alone out the Brook Road and up Brook Hill, where the rifle range was. It was a long, bare hogback of a hill, with a few lone trees along the top, and it commanded a big sweeping view of the Vale of Katmos, with the town of Oakham lying in the midst of it, gathered around the gray, sharp church spire. I sat on a stile on the hilltop and contemplated the wide vale, from the north where the kennels of the Cottesmore Hounds were to Lax Hill and Manton in the south. Straight across was Burley House, on top of its hill, massed with trees, a few red brick houses straggled out from the town to the bottom of the slope. And all the time I reflected that afternoon upon Blake. I remembered how I concentrated and applied myself to it. It was rare that I ever really thought about such a thing of my own accord, but I was trying to establish what manner of man he was. Where did he stand? What did he believe? What did he preach? On one hand, he spoke of the priests in black gowns who were going their rounds binding with briars my joys and desires. And on the other, he detested Voltaire and Rousseau and everybody like them and everything they stood for. And he abominated all materialistic deism and all the polite, abstract, natural religions of the 18th century, the agnosticism of the 19th, and in fact, most of the common attitudes of our day. The atoms of Democritus and Newton's particles of light are sands upon the Red Seashore, where Israel's tents do shine so bright. I was absolutely incapable of reconciling in my mind two things that seemed so contrary. Blake was a revolutionary, and yet he detested the greatest and most typical revolutionaries of his time, and declared himself opposed without compromise to people who, as I thought, seemed to exemplify some of his own most characteristic ideals. How incapable I was of understanding anything like the ideals of William Blake. How could I possibly realize that his rebellion 
for all of its strange heterodoxies, was fundamentally the rebellion of the saints. It was the rebellion of the lover of the living God, the rebellion of one whose desire of God was so intense and irresistible that it condemned with all its might all the hypocrisy and petty sensuality and skepticism and materialism which cold and trivial minds set up as unpassable barriers between God and the souls of men. The priests that he saw going their rounds in black gowns, he knew no Catholics at the time, and probably had never even seen a Catholic priest, were symbols in his mind of the weak, uncompromising, pharisaic piety of those whose God was nothing but an objectification of their own narrow and conventional desires and hypocritical fears. He didn't distinguish any particular religion or sect as the objects of his disdain. He simply could not stand false piety and religiosity, in which the love of God was stamped out of the souls of men by formalism and conventions, without any charity, without the light and life of a faith that brings man face to face with God. If on one page of Blake these priests in black gowns were frightening and hostile figures, on another the gray monk of Charlemagne, was a saint and a hero of charity and faith, fighting for the peace and of the true God with all the ardent love that was the only reality that Blake lived for. Toward the end of his life, Blake told his friend Samuel Palmer that the Catholic Church was the only one that taught the love of God. I am not, of course, recommending the study of William Blake to all minds as a perfect way to faith and to God, Blake is really extraordinarily difficult and obscure, and there is in him some of the confusion of almost all the heterodox and heretical mystical systems that ever flourished in the West, and that's saying a lot. And yet, by the grace of God, at least in my opinion, he was kept very much uncontaminated by all his crazy symbols precisely because he was such a good and holy man, and because his faith was so real and his love for God so mighty and so sincere. The providence of God was eventually to use Blake to awaken something of faith and love in my own soul, in spite of all the misleading notions and all the almost infinite possibilities of error that underline his weird and violent figures. I do not, therefore, want to seem to canonize him, but I have to acknowledge my own debt to him and the truth which may appear curious to some, although it really is not so, that through Blake I would one day come in a roundabout way to the only true church, and to the one living God, through his Son, Jesus Christ. Part 5 In three months, the summer of 1931, I suddenly matured like a weed. I cannot tell which is more humiliating, the memory of the half-baked adolescent I was in June, or the glib and hard-boiled specimen I was in October, when I came back to Oakham, full of a thorough and deep-rooted sophistication of which I was both conscious and proud. The beginning was like this. Pop wrote to me to come to America. I got a brand new suit made. I said to myself, on the boat, I'm going to meet a beautiful girl and I am going to fall in love. So I got on the boat. The first day I sat in a deck chair and read the correspondence of Goethe and Schiller, which had been imposed on me as a duty in preparation for the scholarship examinations at the university. What is worse, I not only tolerated this imposition, but actually convinced myself that it was interesting. The second day, I had more or less found out who was on the boat. The third day, I was no longer interested in Goethe and Schiller. 
The fourth day, I was up to my neck in the trouble that I had been looking for, and it was a 10-day boat ride. I would rather spend two years in a hospital than go through that anguish again, that devouring, emotional, passionate love of adolescence that sinks its claws into you and consumes you day and night and eats into the vitals of your soul. All the self-tortures of doubt and anxiety and imagination and hope and despair that you go through when you're a child trying to break out of your shell only to find yourself in the middle of a legion of full-armed emotions against which you have no defense. It's like being flayed alive. No one can go through it twice. This kind of a love affair can really happen only once in a man's life. After that, he's calloused. He's no longer capable of so many torments. He can suffer, but not from so many matters of no account. After one such crisis, he has experience, and the possibility of a second time no longer exists, because the secret of the anguish was his own utter guilelessness. He is no longer capable of such complete and absurd surprises. No matter how simple a man he may be, the obvious cannot go on astonishing him forever. I was introduced to this particular girl by a Catholic priest who came from Cleveland and played shuffleboard in his shirt sleeves without a Roman collar on. He knew everybody on the boat in the first day. And as for me, two days had gone by before I even realized that she was on board. She was traveling with a couple of aunts, and the three of them did not mix in with the other passengers very much. They kept to themselves in their three deck chairs and had nothing to do with the gentlemen in tweed caps and glasses who went breezing around and around the promenade deck. When I first met her, I got the impression she was no older than I was. As a matter of fact, she was about twice my age. But you could be twice 16 without being old, as I now realize, 16 years after the event. She was small and delicate and looked as if she was made out of porcelain. She had big, wide-open California eyes and was not afraid to talk in a voice that was at once ingenuous and independent and had some suggestion of weariness about it, as if habitually she stayed up too late at night. To my dazzled eyes, she immediately became the heroine of every novel, and I all but flung myself face down on the deck at her feet. She could have put a collar on my neck and led me around from that time forth on the end of a chain. Instead of that, I spent my days telling her and her aunts all about my ideals and my ambitions, and she in turn attempted to teach me how to play bridge. And that was the surest proof of her conquest, for I never allowed anyone else to try such a thing as that on me. Never. But even she could not succeed in such an enterprise. We talked. The insatiable wound inside me bled and grew, and I was doing everything I could to make it bleed more. Her perfume and the peculiar smell of the denicotinized cigarette she smoked followed me everywhere and tortured me in my cabin. She told me how once she was in a famous nightclub in a famous city when a famous person, a prince of the royal blood, had stared very intently at her for a long time and had finally got up and started to lurch in the direction of her table when his friends had made him sit down and behave himself. I could see all the counts and dukes who liked to marry people like Constance Bennett would also want to marry her. But the counts and the dukes were not here on board this glorified cargo boat that was carrying us all peacefully across the mild, dark waves of the North Atlantic. We made Nantucket light on Sunday afternoon and had to anchor in quarantine that night. So the ship rode in the narrows on the silent waters, and the lights of Brooklyn glittered in the harbor like jewels. The boat was astir with music 
and with a warm, glowing life that pulsated within the dark hull and poured out into the July night through every porthole. There were parties in all the cabins. Everywhere you went, especially on deck where it was quiet, you were placed in the middle of movie scenery, the setting for the last reel of a picture. I made a declaration of my undying love. I would not, could not ever love anyone else but her. It was impossible, unthinkable. If she went to the ends of the earth, destiny would bring us together again. The stars and their courses from the beginning of the world had plotted this meeting, which was the central fact in the whole history of the universe. Love like this was immortal. It conquered time and outlasted the futility of human history, and so forth. She talked to me in her turn, gently and sweetly. What it sounded like was, You don't know what you're saying. This can never be. We shall never meet again. What it meant was, You are a nice kid, but for heaven's sake, grow up before someone makes a fool of you. I went to my cabin and sobbed over my diary for a while, and then, against all the laws of romance, went peacefully to sleep. However, I could not sleep for long. At five o'clock, I was up again and walking restlessly around the deck. It was hot. A gray mist lay on the narrows. But when it became light, other anchored ships began to appear as shapes in the mist. One of them was a red star line around which, as I learned from the papers when I got on shore, a passenger was at that precise moment engaged in hanging himself. At the last minute before landing, I took a snapshot of her, which, to my intense sorrow, came out blurred. I was so avid for a picture of her that I got too close with the camera, and it was out of focus. It was a piece of poetic justice that filled me with woe for months. Of course, the whole family was there on the dock, but the change was devastating. With my heart ready to explode with immature emotions, I suddenly found myself surrounded by all the cheerful and peaceful and comfortable solicitudes of home. Everybody wanted to talk. Their voices were full of questions and information. They took me for a drive on Long Island and showed me where Mrs. Hurst lived and everything. But I only hung my head out the window of the car and watched the green trees go by and wished I were dead. I would not tell anybody what was the matter with me, and this reticence was the beginning of a kind of estrangement between us. From that time on, no one could be sure of what I was doing or thinking. I would go to New York, and I would not come home for meals, and I would not tell anyone where I had been. Most of the time, I had not been anywhere special. I would go to the movies, and then wander around the streets, and look at the crowds of people, and eat hot dogs, and drink orange juice at Netics. Once, with great excitement, I got inside a speakeasy, and when I found out that the place was raided a few days later, I grew so much in my own estimation that I began to act as if I had shot my way out of the wildest joint in town. Monomaman was the one who suffered most from my reticence. For years she had been sitting at home, wondering what Pop was doing in the city all day. And now that I was developing the same wandering habits, it was quite natural for her to imagine strange things about me too. But the only wickedness I was up to was that I roamed around the city, smoking cigarettes and hugging my own sweet sense of independence. I found out that Grosset and Dunlap published more than the Rover Boys. They brought out reprints of writers like Hemingway and Aldous Huxley and D.H. Lawrence, and I devoured them all on the cool sleeping porch of the house at Douglaston, 
while the moths of the summer darkness came batting and throbbing against the screens, attracted by my light that burned until all hours. Most of the time I was running into my uncle's room to borrow the dictionary, and when he found out what words I was looking up, he arched his eyebrows and said, What are you reading, anyway? At the end of the summer, I started back for England on the same boat on which I had come. This time, the passenger list included some girls from Bryn Mawr and some from Vassar and some from somewhere else, all of whom were going to a finishing school in France. It seems as if all the rest of the people on board were detectives. Some of them were professional detectives. Others were amateurs. All of them made me and the Bryn Mawr girls the objects of their untiring investigations. But in any case, the ship was divided into two groups. On the one hand, the young people. On the other, the elders. We sat in the smoking room all the rainy days playing Duke Ellington records on the portable Vic that belonged to one of the girls. When we got tired of that, we wandered all over the ship looking for funny things to do. The hold was full of cattle. And there was also a pack of foxhounds down there. We used to go down and play with the dogs. When the cattle were unloaded, one of the cows broke loose and ran all over the dock in a frenzy. One night, three of us got up in the crow's nest on the foremast, where we certainly did not belong. Another time, we had a party with the radio operators, and I got into a big argument about communism. That was another thing that happened that summer. I had begun to get the idea that I was a communist, although I wasn't quite sure what communism was. There are a lot of people like that. They do no little harm by virtue of their sheer stupid inertia, lost in between all camps and the no-man's land of their own confusion. They are fair game for anybody. They can be turned into fascists just as quickly as they can be pulled into line with those who really are Reds. The other group on the ship was made up of middle-aged people. At their core were the red-faced, hard-boiled cops who spent their time drinking and gambling and fighting among themselves and spreading scandal all over the boat about the young ones who were so disreputable and wild. The truth is that we did have quite a big bar bill, the Bryn Mawr girls and myself, but we were never drunk because we drank slowly and spent the whole time stuffing ourselves with sardines on toast and all the other dainties which are the stock and trade of English liners. In any case, I set foot once more in the soil of England, dressed up in a gangster suit which Pop had bought me at Wallach's, complete with padded shoulders, and I had a new pale gray hat over my eyes and walked into England pleased with the consciousness that I had easily acquired a very lurid reputation for myself with scarcely any trouble at all. The separation of the two generations on board the ship had pleased me. It had flattered me right down to the soles of my feet. It was just what I wanted. It completed my self-confidence, guaranteed my self-assertion. Anybody older than myself symbolized authority, and the vulgarity of the detectives and the stupidity of the other middle-aged people who had believed all their stories about us fed me a pleasantly justifiable sense of contempt for their whole generation. Therefore, I concluded that I was now free of all authority and that nobody could give me any advice I had listened to, because advice was only the cloak of hypocrisy or weakness or vulgarity or fear. Authority was constituted by the old and weak and had its roots in their envy for the joys and pleasures of the young and strong. Finally, when I arrived at Oakham several days after the beginning of the term, I was convinced that I was the only one in the whole place who knew anything about life, from the headmaster on down. I was now a house prefect in Hodge Wing, 
with a great big study and a lot of slightly lopsided wicker armchairs full of cushions. On the walls, I hung Medici prints of Manet and some other Impressionists and photos of various Greco-Roman Venuses from the museums in Rome. And my bookshelf was full of a wide variety of strange bright-colored novels and pamphlets, all of which were so inflammatory that there would never be a special need for the church to put them on the index, for they would all be damned, ipso jure, most of them by the natural law itself. I will not name the ones I remember, because some fool might immediately go and read them all, but I might mention that one of the pamphlets was Marx's Communist Manifesto, not because I was seriously exercised about the injustices done to the working class, which are and were very real, but were too serious for my empty-headed vanity, but simply because I thought it fitted in nicely with the decor in which I now moved in all my imaginings. For it had become evident to me that I was a great rebel. I fancied I had suddenly risen above all the errors and stupidities and mistakes of modern society. There are enough of them to rise above, I admit, and that I had taken my place in the ranks of those who held up their heads and squared their shoulders and marched into the future. In the modern world, people are always holding up their heads and marching to the future, although they haven't the slightest idea what they think the future is or could possibly mean. The only future we seem to walk into, in actual fact, is full of bigger and more terrible wars, wars well calculated to knock our upraised heads off those squared shoulders. Here in the study, I edited the school magazine, which had fallen into my hands that autumn, and read T.S. Eliot, and the rest of the time I played Duke Ellington's records or got into arguments about politics and religion. All those vain and absurd arguments. My advice to an ordinary religious man, supposing anyone were to desire my advice on this point, would be to avoid all arguments about religion, and especially about the existence of God. However, to those who know some philosophy, I would recommend the study of Dun Scotus's proof for the actual existence of an infinite being, which are given in the second distinction of the first book of the Opus Oxoniens in Latin that is hard enough to give you many headaches. It is getting to be rather generally admitted that, for accuracy and depth and scope, this is the most perfect and complete and thorough proof of the existence of God that has ever been worked out by any man. I doubt if it would have done much good to bring these considerations before me in those days when I was just turning 17 and thought I knew all about philosophy without ever having learned any. However, I did have a desire to learn. I was attracted to philosophy. It was an attraction that the headmaster had worked hard to implant in our souls. But there was, and could be, no course in philosophy at Oakham. I was left to my own devices. I remember once mentioning all this to Tom, my guardian. We were walking out of the front door into Harley Street, and I told him of my desire to study philosophy, to know the philosophers. He, being a doctor, told me to leave philosophy alone. There were few things, he told me, that were greater wastes of time. Fortunately, this was one of the matters in which I decided to ignore his advice. Anyway, I went ahead and tried to read some philosophy. I never got very far with it. It was too difficult for me to master all by myself. People who are immersed in sensual appetites and desires are not very well prepared to handle abstract ideas. Even in the purely natural order, a certain amount of purity of heart is required before an intellect can get sufficiently detached and clear to work out the problems of metaphysics. 
I say a certain amount, however, because I am sure no one needs to be a saint to be a clever metaphysician. I dare say that there are plenty of metaphysicians in hell. However, the philosophers to whom I was attracted were not the best. For the most part, I used to take their books out of libraries and return them without ever having opened them. It was just as well. Nevertheless, during Easter vacation, when I was 17, I earnestly and zealously set about trying to figure out Spinoza. I had gone to Germany by myself as usual for the vacation. In Cologne, I had bought a big rucksack and slung it over my shoulders and started up the Rhine Valley on foot in a blue jersey and an old pair of flannel bags so that people in the inns along the road asked me if I was a Dutch sailor off one of the river barges. In the rucksack, which was already heavy enough, I had a couple of immoral novels and the Everyman Library edition of Spinoza. Spinoza and the Rhine Valley. I certainly had a fine sense of appropriateness. The two go very well together. However, I was about 80 years too late, and the only thing that was lacking was that I was not an English or American student at Heidelberg. Then the mixture would have been perfect in all its mid-19th century ingredients. I picked up more on this journey than a few intellectual errors. Before I got to Koblenz, I had trouble in one foot. Some kind of infection seemed to be developing under one of the toenails. But it was not especially painful, and I ignored it. However, it made walking unpleasant. And so, after going on as far as St. Gore, I gave up in disgust. Besides, the weather had turned bad, and I had got lost in the forest trying to follow the imaginary hiker's trail called the Rhein-Hohenweg. I went back to Koblenz and sat in a room over a big beer hall called Neuer Franzenkanner and began my desultory study of Spinoza and my modern novelists. Since I understood the latter much better than the philosopher, I soon gave him up and concentrated on the novels. After a few days, I returned to England, passing through Paris where Pop and Bonamamon were. There I picked up some more and even worse books and went back to school. I had not been back for more than a few days when I began to feel ill. At first I thought I might only be out of sorts because of the sore foot and a bad toothache, which had suddenly begun to afflict me. They sent me down to the school dentist, Dr. McTaggart, who lived in a big brick building like a barracks on the way to the station. Dr. McTaggart was a lively little fellow. He knew me well, for I was always having trouble with my teeth. He had a theory that you should kill the nerves of the teeth, and he had already done so to half a dozen of mine. For the rest, he would trot gaily around and around the big chair in which I sat, mute and half-frozen with terror, and he would sing as he quickly switched his drills. It won't be a stylish marriage, what can't afford a carriage, but you'll look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. And then he would start wrecking my teeth once again with renewed gusto. This time, he tapped out the tooth and looked serious. It will have to come out, he said. I was not sorry. The thing was hurting me, and I wanted to be rid of it as soon as possible. But Dr. McTaggart said, I can't give you anything to deaden the pain, you know. Why not? There's a great deal of infection, and the matter has spread far beyond the roots of the tooth. I accepted this reasoning on trust and said, Well, go ahead. And I sat in the chair, mute with misgivings, while he happily trotted over to his toolbox, singing, It won't be a stylish marriage, and pulled out a pair of ugly-looking forceps. Already, he said, jacking back the chair and brandishing the instrument of torture. I nodded, feeling as if I had gone pale to the roots of my hair. 
But the tooth came out fast in one big vivid flash of pain and left me spitting a lot of green and red business into the little blue whispering whirlpool by the side of the dentist chair. Oh, goodness. I don't like that very much, I should say. I walked wearily back to school, reflecting that it was not really so terrible after all to have a tooth pulled out without Novocaine. However, instead of getting better, I got worse. By evening, I was really ill. And that night, that sleepless night, was spent in a fog of sick confusedness and general pain. The next morning, they took my temperature and put me to bed in the sick room, where I eventually got to sleep. That did not make me any better, and I soon gathered in a vague way that our matron, Miss Harrison, was worried about me, and communicated her worries to the headmaster, in whose own house this particular sick room was. Then the school doctor came around, and he went away again, returning with Dr. McTaggart, who this time did not sing. And I heard them agreeing that I was getting to be too full of gangrene for my own good. They decided to lance a big hole in my gum and see if they couldn't drain the pocket of infection. And so, having given me a little ether, they went ahead. I awoke with a mouthful of filth, both doctors urging me to hurry up and get rid of it. When they had gone, I lay back in my bed and closed my eyes and thought, I have blood poisoning. And then my mind went back to the sore foot I had developed in Germany. Well, I would tell them about that when they came back next time. Sick, weary, half asleep, I felt the throbbing of the wound in my mouth. Blood poisoning. The room was very quiet. It was rather dark, too, and as I lay in the bed in my weariness and pain and disgust, I felt for a moment the shadow of another visitor pass into the room. It was death that came to stand by my bed. I kept my eyes closed more out of apathy than anything else. But anyway, there was no need to open one's eyes to see the visitor, to see death. Death is someone you see very clearly with eyes in the center of your heart, eyes that see not by reacting to light, but by reacting to a kind of chill from within the marrow of your own life. And with those eyes, those interior eyes, open upon that coldness, I lay half asleep and looked at the visitor death. What did I think? All I remember was that I was filled with a deep and tremendous apathy. I felt so sick and disgusted that I did not very much care whether I lived or died. Perhaps death did not come very close to me or give me a good look at the nearness of his coldness and darkness, or I would have been more afraid. But at any rate, I lay there in a kind of torpor and said, Come on, I don't care. And then I fell asleep. What a tremendous mercy it was that death did not take me at my word that day, when I was still only seventeen. What a thing it would have been if the trap doors that were prepared for me had yawned and opened their blackness and swallowed me down to the middle of that sleep. I tell you, it's a blessing beyond calculation that I awoke again that day or the following night or in a week or two that came after. But I lay there with nothing in my heart but apathy. There was a kind of pride and spite in it, as if it was life's fault that I had to suffer a little discomfort, and for that I would show my scorn and hatred of life and die, as if it were some sort of revenge. Revenge upon what? What was life? Something existing apart from me and separate from myself? Don't worry, I didn't enter into any speculations. I only thought, if I have to die, what of it? What do I care? Let me die then. I'm finished. 
religious people, those who have faith and love God and realize what life is and what death means and know what it is to have an immortal soul, do not understand how it is with the ones who have no faith and who have already thrown away their souls. I find it hard to conceive that anybody could enter into the presence of death without some kind of compunction. But they should realize that millions of men die the way I was then prepared to die, the way I might then have died. They might say to me, Surely you thought of God and you wanted to pray to him for mercy. But no, as far as I remember, the thought of God, the thought of prayers, did not even enter my mind either that day or all the rest of the time I was ill, or that whole year for that matter. Or if the thought did come to me, it was only as a matter of occasion for its denial and rejection. I remember that in that year when we stood in the chapel and recited the Apostles' Creed, I used to keep my lips tight with full deliberation and set purpose by way of declaring my own creed, which was, I believe in nothing, or at least I thought I believed in nothing. Actually, I had only exchanged a certain faith, faith in God, who is truth, for a vague, uncertain faith in the opinions and authority of men and pamphlets and newspapers, wavering and varying and contradictory opinions, which I did not even understand clearly. I wish I could give those who believe in God some kind of an idea of the state of a soul like mine was in then, but it is impossible to do it in sober, straight, measured prose terms. And in a sense, image and analogy would be even more misleading by the very fact that they would have life in them and convey the notion of some real entity, some kind of energy, some sort of activity. But my soul was simply dead. It was a blank a nothingness. It was empty. It was a kind of spiritual vacuum as far as the supernatural order was concerned. Even its natural faculties were shriveled husks of which they ought to have been. A soul is an immaterial thing. It is a principle of activity. It is an act, a form, an energizing principle. It is the life of the body, and it must also have a life of its own. But the life of the soul does not inhere in any physical material subject. So to compare a soul without grace to a corpse without life is only a metaphor. But it is very true. St. Teresa had a vision of hell. She saw herself confined in a narrow hole in a burning wall. The vision terrified her above all with the sense of the appalling stress of this confinement and heat. All this is symbolic, of course, but a poetic grasp of the meaning of the symbol should convey something of the experience of a soul which is reduced to an almost infinite level of helplessness and frustration by the fact of dying in sin and thus being eternally separated from the principle of all vital activity which, for the soul in its proper order, means intellection and love. But now I lay on this bed full of gangrene and my soul was rotten with the corruption of my sins, and I did not even care whether I lived or died. The worst thing that can happen to anyone in this life is to lose all sense of these realities. The worst thing that had ever happened to me was this consummation of my sins in abominable coldness and indifference, even in the presence of death. What is more, there was nothing I could do for myself. There was absolutely no means no natural means within reach for getting out of the state. Only God could help me. Who prayed for me? 
One day I shall know. But in the economy of God's love, it is through the prayers of other men that these graces are given. It was through the prayers of someone who loved God that I was one day to be delivered out of that hell where I was already confined without knowing it. The big gift God gave me was that I got well. They bundled me up and put me on a stretcher with blankets, all up around my face and nothing sticking out but my nose, and carried me across the stone quadrangle where my friends were playing quad cricket with a sawed-off bat and a gray tennis ball. They stood aside in awe as I passed on the way to the school sanatorium. I had explained to the doctor about my foot, and they came and cut off the toenail and found the toe full of gangrene. But they gave me some antitoxin and did not have to cut off the toe. Dr. McTaggart came around every day or two to treat the infected place in my mouth, and gradually I began to get better and to eat and sit up and read my filthy novels again. Nobody thought of prohibiting them because nobody else had ever heard of the authors. It was while I was in the sanatorium that I wrote a long essay on the modern novel. Gide, Hemingway, Dos Passos, Jules Romain, Dresser, and so on for the Bailey English Prize, and won a lot of books bound in tree calf for my efforts. Two attempts were made to convert me to less shocking tastes. The music master lent me a set of records of Bach's B minor mass, which I liked, and sometimes played on my portable gramophone, which I had with me in the big airy room looking out on the headmaster's garden. But most of the time, I played the hottest and loudest records, turning the Victrola toward the classroom buildings 80 yards away across the flower beds, hoping that my companions, grinding out the syntax of Virgil's Georgics, would be very envious of me. The other loan was that of a book. The headmaster came along one day and gave me a little blue book of poems. I looked at the name on the back. Gerard Manley Hopkins. I had never heard of him. But I opened the book and read The Starlight Night and The Harvest Poem and the most lavish and elaborate early poems. I noticed that the man was a Catholic and a priest and, what's more, a Jesuit. I could not make up my mind whether I liked his verse or not. It was elaborate and tricky and, in places, a little lush and overdone, I thought. Yet it was original and had a lot of vitality and music and depth. In fact, the later poems were all far too deep for me, and I could not make anything out of them at all. Nevertheless, I accepted the poet with reservations. I gave the book back to the head and thanked him, and never altogether forgot Hopkins, though I was not to read him again for several years. I got out of the sanatorium in a month or six weeks. With the end of June came our big examination, the higher certificate, which I took in French and German and Latin. Then we went away for vacation, and I settled down to wait till September for the results of the exam. Pop and Bonamaman and John Paul were once again in Europe for the summer, and we all spent a couple of months in a big, dreary hotel in Bournemouth, standing on top of a cliff, facing the sea with a battery of white iron balconies painted silver so that they gleamed in the pale English summer sun and in the morning mists. I will not go into the emotions of that summer in which I and a girl I met there kept going through storms of sentiment alternating with adolescent quarrels, during which I used to escape from Bournemouth into the Dorset Downs and wander around for the whole day in the country trying to recover my equilibrium. 
But at the end of the summer, when she went back to London, and my family also took the boat at Southampton and went home, I packed up my rucksack and went into the new forest with a pup tent and sat down under some pine trees at the edge of a common of a couple of miles from Brockenhurst. Oh, the tremendous loneliness of that first night in the forest. The frogs sang in the brackish stream, and the fireflies played in the gorse, and occasionally a lone car would pass along the distant road, exaggerating the silence by the sound that died in the wake of its passing. And I sat in the door of my tent, uneasily trying to digest the eggs and bacon I had fried and the bottle of cider I had brought out from the village. She had said she would write me a letter addressed to the post office at Brockenhurst as soon as she got home, but I thought this campsite at the edge of the common was too dreary. Besides, the water of the stream tasted funny, and I thought maybe I might get poisoned, so I moved on down toward Beaulieu, where I did not have to eat my own cooking, but ate at an inn. I spent the afternoon lying in the grass in front of the old Cistercian Abbey, copiously pitying myself for my boredom and my loneliness of immature love. At the same time, however, I was debating in my mind whether to go to a gymkhana, that is a sort of polite amateur horse show, and mingle with all the gentry of the country, perhaps meeting someone even more beautiful than the girl for whom I thought I was at the moment pining away even unto death. However, I wisely decided to avoid the tents of such a dull affair. As with the Cistercian Abbey, which was the scene of these meditations, I did not think much about it at all. I had wandered through the ruins of the old building and had stood in the parish church that had taken over the old refectory of the monks, and I tasted a little of the silence and peacefulness of the greensward under the trees where the cloister used to be. But it was all in the usual picnic spirit with which the average modern Englishman visits one of his old abbeys. If he does not happen to wonder what kind of men once lived in such places or why they ever did so, he does not ask himself if people still try to do the same thing today. That would seem to him a kind of impertinence. But this time I had practically lost all interest in such speculations. What did I care about monks and monasteries? The world was going to open out before me with all its entertainments, and everything would be mine. And with my intelligence and my five sharp senses, I would rob all its treasures and rifle its coffers and empty them all. And I would take what pleased me, and the rest I would throw away. And if I merely felt like spoiling the luxuries I did not want to use, I would spoil them and misuse them to suit myself, because I was master of everything. It didn't matter that I would not have much money. I would have enough, and my wits would do the rest, and I was aware that the best pleasures can be had without very much money, or none at all even. I was at the house of one of my friends from school when the results of the higher certificate came out in September, and I could not decently indulge all my vanity at my success because he had failed. However, he and I were to go up to Cambridge together for the scholarship examinations that December. Andrew was the son of a country parson in the Isle of Wight, and he had been cricket captain at Oakham. He wore horn-rimmed spectacles and had a great chin that he held up in the air and a lock of black hair that fell down over his forehead. He was one of the school intellectuals. He and I used to work, or rather sit, in the library at Oakham, with many books open before us, but talking about impertinent matters and drinking a foul purple concoction called Vimto out of bottles which we concealed under the table 
or behind the volumes of the Dictionary of National Biography. He had discovered a black book called, I think, The Outline of Modern Knowledge, which was something that had just come to the library and was full of information about psychoanalysis. Indeed, it went into some details of psychoanalytical fortune-telling by the inspection of feces, which I never ran into anywhere else, and which I still preserved enough sense to laugh at at that time. But later at Cambridge, psychoanalysis was to provide me with a kind of philosophy of life, and even a sort of pseudo-religion which was nearly the end of me altogether. By that time, though, Andrew himself had lost interest in it. When we went up to the university to sit for the scholarship exam, in the dank, heavy-hanging mists of December, I spent most of the time between papers devouring D. H. Lawrence's Fantasia of the Unconscious, which, even as psychoanalysis, is completely irresponsible, and just as it says, a fantasia. Lawrence picked up a lot of terms like lumbar ganglion and threw them all together and stewed them up with his own worship of the sex instinct to produce the weird mixture which I read as reverently as if it were some kind of sacred revelation, sitting in the rooms of an undergraduate who liked Picasso, but who had gone down for Christmas vacation. Andrew, for his part, was at St. Catherine's, terrified of a tutor who had a reputation for being a very ferocious person. All that week I sat under the high silent rafters of the hall at Trinity College and covered long sheets of foolscap with my opinions concerning Moliere and Racine and Balzac and Victor Hugo and Goethe and Schiller and all the rest, and a few days after that it was all over. We looked in the Times, and this time both Andrew and I had succeeded. We were exhibitioners, he at St. Catherine and I at Clare, while his study mate Dickens, who was the only other person at Oakham besides myself who liked hot records, had another exhibition at St. John's. My satisfaction was very great. I was finished with Oakham. Not that I disliked the school, but I was glad of my liberty. Now at last I imagined that I really was grown up and independent, and I could stretch out my hands and take all the things that I wanted. So during the Christmas holidays, I ate and drank so much and went to so many parties that I made myself sick. But I picked myself up and dusted myself off, and on January 31st of the new year, my 18th birthday, Tom took me to the Café Anglais and treated me to champagne, and the next day I was off on my way to Italy. Part 6 Already at Avignon, I foresaw that I was going to run out of money before I got to Genoa. I had a letter of credit on a bank there. So from Avignon, I wrote back to Tom asking for money. From Marseille, I started out on foot along the coast, walking on the white mountain road, overlooking the bright blue water, having on my hip a flask of rum and on the rucksack some more of the same novels. At Cassis, all the restaurants were crammed with people who had come out from Marseille for the day, since it was Sunday, and I had to wait long for my bouillabaisse. It was dark by the time I arrived at the grim little port of La Soitat under its sugar-loaf rock. Tired, I sat on the jetty and contemplated the moon. At Herrer's, I had to wait a couple of days before the money arrived, and when it did, the letter that went with it was filled with sharp reproofs. Tom, my guardian, took occasion of my impracticality to call attention to most of my other faults as well, 
and I was very humiliated. So after a month of my precious liberty, I received my first indication that my desires could never be absolute. They must necessarily be conditioned and modified by contacts and conflicts with the desires and interests of others. This was something that would take me a long time to find out, and indeed, in the natural order alone, I would never really get to understand it. I believed in the beautiful myth about having a good time so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. You can't live for your own pleasure and your own convenience without inevitably hurting and injuring the feelings and the interests of practically everybody you meet. But, as a matter of fact, in the natural order, no matter what ideals may be theoretically possible, most people more or less live for themselves and for their own interests and pleasures or for those of their own family or group. And therefore, they are constantly interfering with one another's aims and hurting one another and injuring one another, whether they mean to or not. I started out from Herer's again, this time more weary and depressed, walking along under the pines, under the hot sun, looking at the rocks and the yellow mimosas and the little pink villas and the light blazing on the sea. That night I came down a long hill in the dusk to a hamlet called Cavalier and slept at a boarding house full of somber retired accountants who drank vin rosé with their wives under the dim light of weak electric bulbs and I went to bed and dreamt I was in jail. At Saint-Tropez, I had a letter of introduction to a friend of Tom's, a man with TB, living in a sunny house on top of a hill, and there I met a couple of Americans who had rented a villa in the hills behind Cannes, and they invited me there when I came that way. On the way to Cannes, I got caught by a storm toward evening in the mountain of Estrelle, and was picked up by a chauffeur driving a big fancy delage, I slung my rucksack off my shoulder and threw it in the back seat and settled down, with the warmth of the motor seeping through the boards and into my wet, tired feet. The chauffeur was an Englishman who had an auto-hiring business in Nice and said he had just picked up the Lindbergh family off the liner at Villafranche and had taken them somewhere down the road here. At Cannes, he took me to a very dull place, a club for English chauffeurs and sailors off the yachts of the rich people who were wintering on the Riviera, there I ate ham and eggs and watched the chauffeurs politely playing billiards and grew depressed at the smell of London that lingered in the room, the smell of English cigarettes and English beer. It reminded me of the fogs I thought I had escaped. Then I found the villa of the people I had met at Saint-Tropez and stayed there a couple of days. And finally, fed up with walking and seeing I would probably be bored with the rest of the road along the coast, I got on the train and went to Genoa. Perhaps the boredom that I felt had its roots in some physical cause, because the first morning I woke up in Genoa with a bunch of Italian house painters working on the roof outside my window. I was out of sorts and had a great boil on my elbow, which I clumsily tried to heal by my own private treatments, which didn't work. So I cashed my letter of credit and got on another train and went to Florence, where I had another letter of introduction to a man who was a sculptor. Florence was freezing. I took a trolley out across the Arno and found the steep road up the hill where my man lived and climbed it in the icy silence of a Tuscan winter evening. At first I thought nobody was going to answer my knock on the big hollow-sounding door, but presently an old Italian cook came out and led me into the studio where I made myself known and explained that I had a boil on my elbow. So the cook got some hot water and I sat in the dried dust of plaster 
and among the stone chips around the base of some half-finished work and talked to the sculptor while his cook fixed up a poultice for my boil. The artist was the brother of the former headmaster of Oakham, the one who had preceded Dougherty. I had seen some of his bas-reliefs, which decorated the front of the school chapel. He was not as old as his brother, the ex-head, but he was a kind, stoop-shouldered person with graying hair and had most of the old head's geniality. He said to me, I was thinking of going down and seeing the Greta Garbo film in town this evening. Do you like Greta Garbo? I admitted I did. Very well, then. We will go. But Florence was too cold, and I thought the boil was getting better. So the next day I left on the way to Rome. I was tired of passing through places. I wanted to get to the term of my journey, where there was some psychological possibility that I would stop in one place and remain. The train ambled slowly through the mountains of Umbria. The blue sky glared down upon the rocks. The compartment was empty, save for myself, and nobody got in until one of the last stations before Rome. All day I stared out at the bare hills, at the wild, ascetic landscape. Somewhere out there, on one of those mountains, St. Francis had been praying, and the seraph with the fiery, blood-red wings had appeared before him with the Christ in the midst of those wings. And from the wounds, other wounds had been nailed in Francis's hands and feet and sides. If I thought of that that day, it would have been all I needed to complete the discouragement of my pagan soul, for it turned out that the boil was no better after all, and that I had another toothache. For that matter, my head felt as if I had a fever as well, and I wondered if the old business of blood poisoning was once again starting. So there I was, with all the liberty that I had been promising myself for so long. The world was mine. How did I like it? I was doing just what I pleased. Instead of being filled with happiness and well-being, I was miserable. The love of pleasure is destined by its very nature to defeat itself and end in frustration. But I was one of the last men in the world who would have been convinced by the wisdom of St. John of the Cross in those strange days. But now I was entering a city which bears living testimony to these truths, to those who can see it, to those who know where to look for it, to those who know how to compare the Rome of the Caesars with the Rome of the Martyrs. I was entering the city that had been thus transformed by the cross. Square, white apartment houses were beginning to appear in thick clusters at the foot of the bare, gray-green hills, with clumps of cypress here and there. And presently, over the roofs of the buildings, I saw, rising up in the dusk, the mighty substance of St. Peter's Dome. The realization that it was not a photograph filled me with great awe. My first preoccupation in Rome was to find a dentist. The people in the hotel sent me to one nearby. There were a couple of nuns in the waiting room. After they left, I entered. The dentist had a brown beard. I did not trust my Italian for so important a matter as a toothache. I spoke to him in French. He knew what he thought was wrong with it, but he did not know the technical word in French. Ah, vous avez un corpo d'aria. I figured it out easily enough to mean that I had caught a chill in my tooth, according to this man with the brown beard. But still, cowardice closed my mouth, and I was content not to argue that I thought it was by no means a chill, but an abscess. I shall treat it with ultraviolet rays. With a mixture of relief and skepticism, I underwent this painless and futile process. It did nothing whatever to relieve the toothache. But 
I left with warm assurances from the dentist that it would all disappear during the night. Far from disappearing during the night, the toothache did what all toothaches do during the night. Kept me awake in great misery, cursing my fate. The next morning I got up and staggered back to my friend, Kolpodaria, next door. I met him coming down the stairs with his beard all brushed and his black hat on his head, with gloves and spats and everything. Only then did I realize it was Sunday. However, he consented to give a look at my chilled tooth. In a mixture of French and Italian, he asked if I could stand ether. I said yes, I could. He draped a clean handkerchief over my nose and mouth and dropped a couple of drops of ether on it. I breathed deeply, and the sweet, sick knives of the smell reached into my consciousness, and the drumming of the heavy dynamos began. I hoped that he wasn't breathing too deeply himself, or that his hand wouldn't slip and spill the whole bottle of it in my face. However, a minute or two later, I woke again, and he was waving the red abscessed roots of the tooth in my face and exclaiming, C'est fini! I moved out of my hotel and found a pensione with windows that looked down on the sunny Triton Fountain in the middle of the Piazza Barberini and the Bristol Hotel and the Barberini Cinema and the Barberini Palace, and the maid brought me some hot water to treat the boil on my arm. I went to bed and tried to read a novel by Maxim Gorky, which very quickly put me to sleep. I had been in Rome before, on an Easter vacation from school for about a week. I had seen the Forum and the Colosseum and the Vatican Museum and St. Peter's, but I had not really seen Rome. This time I started out again, with the misconception common to Anglo-Saxons, that the real Rome is the Rome of the ugly ruins, the Rome of all those gray, corrugated temples wedged in between the hills and the slums of the city. I tried to reconstruct the ancient city in my mind, a dream which did not work very well because of the insistent shouting of the sellers of postcards who beset me on every side. After a few days of trying the same thing, it suddenly struck me that it was not worth the trouble. It was so evident, merely from the masses of stone and brick, that still represented the palaces and temples and baths, that imperial Rome must have been one of the most revolting and ugly and depressing cities the world has ever seen. In fact, the ruins with cedars and cypresses and umbrella pines scattered about among them were far more pleasant than the reality must have been. However, I still roamed about the museums, especially the one in the baths of Diocletian, which had also been at one time a Carthusian monastery, probably not a very successful one, and I studied Rome in a big learned book that I had bought together with an old second-hand Baedeker in French. And after spending the day in museums and libraries and bookstores and among the ruins, I would come home again and read my novels. In fact, I was also beginning to write one of my own, although I did not get very far with it as long as I was in Rome. I had a lot of books with me, a strange mixture. Dryden, the poems of D.H. Lawrence, some Tauschnitz novels, James Joyce's Ulysses in a fancy India paper edition, slick and expensive, which I lent to somebody later on and never got back. Things were going on as they usually did with me, but after about a week, I don't know how it began, I found myself looking into churches rather than into ruined temples. Perhaps it was the frescoes on the wall of an old chapel, ruined too, at the foot of the Palatine, at the edge of the Forum, that first aroused my interest in another and far different Rome. From there, it was easy steps to Saints Cosmos and Damien across the Forum, 
with a great mosaic in the apse of Christ coming in judgment on a dark blue sky, with a suggestion of fire in the small clouds beneath his feet. The effect of this discovery was tremendous. After all the vapid, boring, semi-pornographic statuary of the empire, what a thing it was to come upon the genius of an art full of spiritual vitality and earnestness and power, an art that was tremendously serious and alive and eloquent and urgent in all it had to say. And it was without pretentiousness, without fakery, and had nothing theatrical about it. Its solemnity was made all the more astounding by its simplicity and by the obscurity of the places where it lay hid and by its subservience to higher ends, architectural, liturgical, and spiritual ends, which I could not even begin to understand, but which I could not avoid guessing since the nature of the mosaics themselves and their position and everything about them proclaimed it aloud. I was fascinated by these Byzantine mosaics. I began to haunt the churches where they were found, and as an indirect consequence, all the other churches that were more or less of the same period. And thus, without knowing anything about it, I became a pilgrim. I unconsciously and unintentionally visited all the great shrines of Rome, and I seeked out all their sanctuaries with some of the eagerness and avidity and desire of a true pilgrim, though not quite for the right reason. And yet it was not for a wrong reason either, for these mosaics and frescoes and all the ancient altars and thrones and sanctuaries were designed and built for the instruction of the people who were not capable of immediately understanding anything higher. I never knew what relics and what wonderful and holy things were hidden in the churches whose doors and aisles and arches had become the refuge of my mind, Christ's cradle and the pillar of the flagellation and the true cross and St. Peter's chains and the tombs of the great martyrs, the tomb of the child St. Agnes and the martyr St. Cecilia and of Pope St. Clement and of the great deacon St. Lawrence who was burned on a gridiron. These things did not speak to me, or at least I did not know they spoke to me, but the churches that enshrined them did and so did the art on their walls. And now for the first time in my life, I began to find out something of who this person was that men called Christ. It was obscure, but it was a true knowledge of him, in some sense truer than I knew and truer than I would admit. But it was in Rome that my conception of Christ was formed. It was there that I first saw him, whom I now serve as my God and King, and who owns and rules my life. It is the Christ of the Apocalypse, the Christ of the Martyrs, the Christ of the Fathers. It is the Christ of St. John and of St. Paul and of St. Augustine and St. Jerome and all the Fathers and the Desert Fathers. It is the Christ God, Christ King. For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead corporeally, and you are filled in him, who is the head of all principality and power. For in him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and in him. And he is before all, and by him all things consist. Because in him it hath well pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, who hath loved us? and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us a kingdom and priests to God his Father. 
The saints of those forgotten days had left upon the walls of their churches words which by the peculiar grace of God I was able in some measure to apprehend, although I could not decode them all. But above all, the realest and most immediate source of this grace was Christ himself, present in those churches, in all his power, in all his humanity, in his human flesh and his material, physical, corporeal presence. How often I was left entirely alone in these churches with the tremendous God and knew nothing of it, except that I had to know something of it, as I say, obscurely. And it was he who was teaching me who he was, more directly than I was capable of realizing. These mosaics told me more than I had ever known of the doctrine of a God of infinite power, wisdom, and love, who had yet become man and revealed in his manhood the infinity of power, wisdom, and love that was his godhood. Of course, I could not grasp and believe these things explicitly. But since they were implicit in every line of the pictures I contemplated with such admiration and love, surely I grasped them implicitly. I had to, insofar as the mind of the artist reached my own mind and spoke to it of his conception and his thought. And so I could not help but catch something of the ancient craftsman's love of Christ, the Redeemer and Judge of the world. It was more or less natural that I should want to discover something of the meaning of the mosaics I saw, of the lamb standing as though slain, and of the four-and-twenty elders casting down their crowns. And I had bought a Vulgate text and was reading the New Testament. I'd forgotten all about the poems of D.H. Lawrence except for the fact that he had four poems about the four evangelists based upon the traditional symbols from Ezekiel and the Apocalypse of the four mystical creatures. One evening when I was reading these poems, I became so disgusted with their falseness and futility that I threw down the book and began to ask myself why I was wasting my time with a man of such unimportance as this. For it was evident that he had more or less completely failed to grasp the true meaning of the New Testament, which he had perverted in the interests of a personal and homemade religion of his own, which was not only fanciful, but full of unearthly seeds, all ready to break forth into hideous plants like those that were germinating in Germany's unweeded garden in the dank weather of Nazism. So for once, I put my favorite aside, and I read more and more of the Gospels, and my love for the old churches and their mosaics grew from day to day. Soon, I was no longer visiting them merely for the art. There was something else that attracted me, a kind of interior peace. I loved to be in these holy places. I had a kind of deep and strong conviction that I belonged there, that my rational nature was filled with profound desires and needs that could only find satisfaction in churches of God. I remember that one of my favorite shrines was that of St. Peter in Chains, and I did not love it for any work of art that was there, since the big attraction, the big number, the big feature in that place is Michelangelo's Moses. But I had always been extremely bored by that horned and pop-eyed frown and by the crack in the knee. I'm glad the thing couldn't speak, for it probably would have given out some very heavy statements. Perhaps what attracted me to that church was the apostle himself to whom it was dedicated. And I do not doubt that he was praying earnestly to get me out of my own chains, chains far heavier and more terrible than he was ever in. Where else did I like to go? St. Pudenziana, St. Praxids, above all, St. Mary Major and the Lateran. Although as soon as the atmosphere got heavy with Baroque melodrama, I would get frightened 
and the peace and the obscure, tenuous sense of devotion I had acquired would leave me. So far, however, there had been no deep movement of my will, nothing that amounted to a conversion, nothing to shake the iron tyranny of moral corruption that held my whole nature in fetters. But that was to come. It came in a strange way, suddenly, a way that I will not attempt to explain. I was in my room. It was night. The light was on. Suddenly, it seemed to me that Father, who had been dead more than a year, was there with me. The sense of his presence was as vivid and real and as startling as if he had touched my arm and spoken to me. The whole thing passed in a flash, but in that flash, instantly, I was overwhelmed with a sudden and profound insight into the misery and corruption of my own soul, and I was pierced deeply with a light that made me realize something of the condition I was in, and I was filled with horror at what I saw, and my whole being rose up in revolt against what was within me, and my soul desired escape and liberation and freedom from all this with an intensity and an urgency unlike anything I had ever known before. And now I think for the first time in my whole life, I really began to pray. Praying not with my lips and my intellect and my imagination, but praying out of the very roots of my life and of my being, and praying to the God I had never known, to reach down toward me out of his darkness and to help me get free of the thousand terrible things that held my will in their slavery. There were a lot of tears connected with this, and they did me good. And all the while, although I had lost that first vivid, agonizing sense of the presence of my father in the room, I had him in mind, and I was talking to him as well as God, as though he were a sort of intermediary. I don't mean this in any way that it might be interpreted that I thought he was among the saints. I did not really know what that might mean then, and now that I do know, I would hesitate to say that I thought he was in heaven. Judging by my memory of the experience, I should say it was as if he had been sent me out of purgatory. For after all, there is no reason why the souls in purgatory should not help those on earth by their prayers and influence, just like those in heaven, although usually they need our help more than we need theirs. But in this case, assuming my guess has some truth in it, things were the other way around. However, this is not a thing on which I would place any great stress, and I do not offer any definite explanation of it. How do I know it was not merely my own imagination or something that could be traced to a purely natural and psychological cause? I mean, the part about my father. It is impossible to say. I do not offer any explanation, and I have always had a great antipathy for anything that smells of necromancy, table-turning, and communications with the dead, and I would never deliberately try to enter in any such thing. But whether it was imagination or nerves or whatever else it might have been, I can truly say that I did feel most vividly as if my father were present there. And the consequences that I have described followed from this, as though he had communicated to me without words an interior light from God about the condition of my own soul, although I wasn't even sure I had a soul. The one thing that seemed to me morally certain is that this was really a grace, and a great grace. If I had only followed it through, my life might have been very different and much less miserable for the years that were to come. Before now, I had never prayed in the churches I had visited, but I remember the morning that followed this experience. I remember how I climbed the deserted Aventine in the spring sun, with my soul broken up with contrition, but broken and clean painful but 
sanitary, like a lanced abscess, like a bone broken and reset. And it was true contrition, for I don't think I was capable of mere attrition, since I did not believe in hell. I went to the Dominican's church, Santa Sabina, and it was a very definite experience, something that amounted to a capitulation, a surrender, a conversion, not without struggle, even now, to walk deliberately into a church with no purpose than to kneel down and pray to God. Ordinarily, I never knelt in these churches and never paid any formal or official attention to whose house it was. But now I took holy water at the door and went straight up to the altar rail and knelt down and said, slowly, with all the belief I had in me, the Our Father. It seems almost unbelievable to me that I did no more than this, for the memory remains in me as that of such an experience that it would seem to have implied at least a half an hour of impassioned prayer and tears. The thing to remember is that I had not prayed at all for some years. Another thing which Catholics do not realize about converts is the tremendous agonizing embarrassment and self-consciousness which they feel about praying publicly in a Catholic church. The effort it takes to overcome all the strange imaginary fears that everyone is looking at you that they all think you are crazy or ridiculous is something that costs a tremendous effort. And that day in Santa Sabina, although the church was almost entirely empty, I walked across the stone floor, mortally afraid that a poor, devout old Italian woman was following me with suspicious eyes. As I knelt to pray, I wondered if she would run out and accuse me at once to the priests with scandalous horror for coming and praying in their church as if Catholics were perfectly content to have a lot of heretic tourists walking about their churches with complete indifference and irreverence, and would get angry if one of them so far acknowledged God's presence there as to go down on his knees for a few seconds and say a prayer. However, I prayed and then looked about the church and went into a room where there was a picture by Sassoferrato and stuck my face out a door into a tiny, simple cloister where the sun shone down on an orange tree. After that, I walked out into the open, feeling as if I had been reborn, and crossed the street and strolled through the suburban fields to another deserted church where I did not pray, being scared by some carpenters and scaffolding. I sat outside in the sun on a wall and tasted the joy of my own inner peace and turned over in my mind how my life was now going to change and how I would become better. <laughs>